The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Finland has, for a long time, advocated in favor of a NATO option, meaning that it would seek to become NATO's member if push came to shop. And I think in, in that sense, Finns were more mentally prepared to take the step compared to Swedes, where, we were, where, for example, we could just say that, okay, now we see that the situation has changed and it's time to materialize the option. Whereas in Sweden, they didn't have the option debate, training them and grooming them to become, <laughs> so to say, ready, ready for NATO. And I think, uh, as I said, when push came to shove, many Finns were ready to do the uh, necessary movement, which I think, of course, was a bit surprising for the uh, political leadership as well, but a necessary move in any case in order to get them behind uh, NATO membership as well. I'm David Priest, publisher of Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, May 25th, 2022. Finland and Sweden have made the historic choice to apply to NATO. But there's a lot of misunderstanding out there about the context for these decisions. So I brought together three new voices to the Lawfare podcast from Finland and Sweden to talk through it all. First, Manuel Ortengren, the acting director of the Stockholm Free World Forum, a Swedish foreign and security policy think tank. Second, Mina Aulander from the German Institute for International and Security Affairs, where she focuses on Northern Europe and Nordic security. Third, Henry Vanhanen, a foreign policy advisor to Finland's center-right National Coalition Party. We discussed the history of Finnish and Swedish non-alignment, the shift in public and government opinion toward NATO in recent months, and both countries' processes for applying to the alliance. It's the Lawfare Podcast, May 25th, Finnish and Swedish Perspectives on NATO Membership. Emmanuel, let's start here with Sweden and talk about the famously neutral position of Sweden for some 200 years, which has recently been manifested in non-alignment in the modern period. Talk through that a little bit for us and explain Sweden's security posture over the years up to the current crisis. Well, I think Swedish uh, non-alignment or previously neutrality has it has been kind of an illusion, to be honest, uh, because ever since the the Cold War, Sweden mm-hmm. has collaborated quite a lot with with NATO and especially our NATO neighbors, uh, Denmark and Norway. For example, there is a there was a book that came out. I think it was published in 2011 by a Swedish journalist called Mikael Holmström, 
called the the Hidden Alliance, which uh, mm-hmm. uncovered this because a lot of Swedes actually didn't know about this. This was something that was kept secret uh, even by by the government because it was so so sensitive at the time. And since the early 1990s, um, Sweden has been part of NATO's Partnership for Peace, along with Finland, of course, and so has become very much interoperable with NATO, uh, conducts a great deal of military exercises with with NATO. So, of course, neutrality or, or non-alignment has been part of, of uh, the Swedish identity, I would say, and, and self-perception since since the Napoleonic Wars. And and when Sweden decided uh, not to join NATO in the late uh, 1940s, there there was a lot of references being made by by Swedish ministers to this uh, historic policy. And already then it was part of this Swedish ident- identity. But in, in reality, we have always been closely aligned with, with the West. And even though the rhetoric has suggested otherwise, sometimes I think it is to a large extent an illusion that... Swedes may may now actually be 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 waking up to and and I I for one uh, welcome that I know that it has been a divisive topic but at the moment there is a great deal of support in Sweden for for NATO membership although not quite as big as in Finland. I appreciate your your comments there especially drawing a distinction between the political and the military alignments that is a a strong association with the west without a formal military Alliance, but let me press you on one thing there. You talked just briefly about interoperability. Talk a little bit about that during during the Cold War itself, but especially in the what thirty years since. Can you talk a little bit about the Swedish defense industry and how it works very well in tandem with the kinds of systems that we have throughout NATO? Well, Sweden, because we we decided to to remain neutral, at least on on paper during the Cold War, the Swedish government saw it as as necessary to to have our domestic defense industry, which is quite quite large, and I think it's only comparable to that of maybe the United States, the United Kingdom, France, uh, Russia, and and China. And Sweden has, for example, a, a very for for its size, especially uh, a strong uh, air force, and yeah. uh, we also have submarines, which I think only Germany has uh, around the Baltic Sea region and, and Russia, of course. Um, so it was a deliberate choice, and at at one point Sweden even had its own uh, nuclear program, but it was eventually convinced by by the United States to to not build its own nuclear weapons, so as not to have any any more uh, nuclear states and, and add to to the proliferation mm-hmm. of nuclear weapons. But since, since the 1990s, especially, and since Sweden has, has obviously become more closely aligned with NATO over the past decades, the Swedish defense industry has, you know, has, has worked closer with, with NATO, NATO partners and uh, has had to adapt its, its standards to those of, of, of other countries, too. Mm-hmm. So, so it, it's all part of a of a of a process of, of closer and closer alignment with NATO that I think that you can see in the Swedish defense industry uh, today as well. And I think there that more more steps will probably be be taken as uh, Sweden eventually accedes to to NATO. Mina, let me turn to you to ask a similar question from the Finnish side of things. Uh, obviously, not the same long history of independence as Sweden. But since independence, can you talk about the Finnish 
policy of non-alignment, including in the form of Finlandization, as it was called during the Cold War, but especially in the 1990s up to the recent crisis. Help us understand that period of how Finland chose to align itself or not align itself during that time frame. Yeah, actually, it's um, like Sweden and Finland are two very interesting examples because they are kind of like similar, but also very different in that uh, for Finland, the reasons for non-alignment and uh, and also this kind of not really <laughs> proper neutrality uh, during the Cold War were way more pragmatic than than in the Swedish case. Um, it has it had way less to do with uh, with a kind of like identity or anything like that. It was uh, basically just like the pragmatic approach how to maximize na- national security vis-a-vis Russia as as the the dominating neighbor um, right mm-hmm. to the east of Finland. Mm-hmm. So basically, as you already mentioned, uh, during the Cold War, it was um, in a way not really voluntary. It was after the Winter War and the Continuation War, it was um, kind of a necessary evil to like go into this kind of like status of being like retaining independence uh, de facto, but uh, actually having to uh, consider the, the the interests of the Soviet Union uh, quite widely, uh, which of course also in, included um, like military neutrality. And that is uh, definitely the Finlandization period is definitely one that's not very fondly remembered in Finland. Um, as I as I already mentioned, it was more of a necessary evil. After the Cold War ended, um, basically when Finland uh, joined the EU in 1995, also back then together with Sweden, as always, the two uh, come come kind of in a two pack. So back then. Uh, the debate on NATO membership started also already. It has been discussed a lot lately um, this spring um, in Finland whether actually this this latest period of non-alignment was kind of like a remnant of the Finlandization period, that Finland was still kind of like maybe over-considering the, the, the good relations to Russia and and like like taking still into consideration not to provoke Russia, but um, I'd say that we shouldn't blame ourselves for not having chosen to join NATO before we had this like a bit peculiar policy called uh, the NATO option, uh, which basically meant uh, that since the nineties, just like Sweden, Finland has been uh, like quite deliberately seeking the closest possible uh, partnership with with NATO and like building the highest possible level of interoperability with NATO structures so mm-hmm. that we have been kind of like able to keep this NATO option on the table and open in a way that if necessary we can like cash in that option and join fast if necessary so i'd say that um Basically, what changed now is that um, it has become very obvious that like Russia is so unreliable as a neighbor now that uh, no amount of self-restraint will guarantee your security. Mm-hmm. So um, both the non-alignment since the 90s and this decision now to join, I would describe them both as very pragmatic uh, approaches to national security. Absolutely. Henry, I'd like to talk to you about that aspect that Mina just brought up at the end about the shift. So when Russia invaded Ukraine again, 
of a couple of months ago, public opinion in Finland changed dramatically and quickly. Can you tell us where public opinion and government opinion was on the issue of NATO membership specifically last year, and then how it changed to the beginning of this year with Russian threats, and then how it changed after Russia sent its troops into Ukraine? Well, of course, I would say that obviously the the shift in public opinion is as described as dramatic from a relatively stable support of around 20 to 25% for decades or even lower to going up to what we have seen now, 76% in just a matter of a couple of months. Obviously, that represents a big change. I would say that, of course, the main catalyst has been Russia's attack, probably juiced with the atrocities that the Russian army has done against the Ukrainians, the Ukrainian citizens. I think many Finns woke up to the reality that regardless of of us trying to have a good neighborly relationship with Russia, that this this relationship is fundamentally uh, imbalanced, meaning that Russia could respect Finland's position as a non-military, non-aligned country to a certain degree. But then there is a point that beyond Russia can walk also that it doesn't necessarily respect Finland's position. I think many Finns understand, understood this as well. But I would also note that we, we often talk about the February 24th, which of course has been the main catalyst. But we already saw Russia's military buildup in around the Ukraine beginning late last year in the turn of uh, November and December. And already by then in Finland, we started seeing a debate rising and rising. Now, I've usually said that the Finnish NATO debate is like an interval run. It sometimes takes spikes and sometimes it, it, and then it cools down and goes down. And usually it follows the cycles in, in international security. When something happens, then it goes up for a bit and then it goes down. And I think this was, for example, the case in 2014 with Russia's first war in Ukraine. That the Finnish mm-hmm. NATO debate took, took took off a bit, but not too much. It didn't really go into a position where we would discuss the acute need for any mem- membership like now. But still, I would say that in the, in the, in this case, in December, January, uh, especially after the president of Finland gave his uh, widespread acclaimed uh, New Year's speech, where he said that one has to know when to hurry and when to have patience, I think yes. people started really talking about the possibility of Finland joining NATO, and of course. Afterwards, we've seen interviews by the president and, for example, the Finnish ambassador to the United States saying that already when Russia started indicating its demands that NATO should not enlarge anymore, that Finns and especially the leadership started to change their opinion. But that really didn't really apply to uh, the Finnish people. Of course, we saw a minor jump in the polls going up to, I think, about 28% in favor in January. But it was only after the attack when we saw the jump going up to first 50, then 60, and now 70, and probably even more as the mm-hmm. process goes along. I've said one significant difference compared to Sweden is that it's like Minna said that Finland had for a long time advocated in favor of a NATO option, meaning that it could seek to become NATO's member if push came to shove. Mm-hmm. And I think in, in that sense, Finns were more mentally prepared to take the step compared to Swedes, where, we were, where, for example, we could just say that, okay, now we see that the situation has changed and it's time to materialize the option. Whereas in Sweden, they didn't have the option debate, training them and grooming them to become, <laughs> so to say, ready, ready for NATO. 
And I think, uh, as I said, when push came to shove, the many Finns were ready to do the uh, necessary movement, which I think, of course, was a bit surprising for the uh, political leadership as well, but a necessary move in any case in order to get them behind uh, NATO membership as well. Yes. Your your phrase, when, when push came to shove, reminds me of the commentary that you've just published by that name, Finland and NATO, when push came to shove. And, and in that commentary that you've published online, you make the point that the fierce resistance of the Ukrainians actually have a crucial role here with Finland's application to NATO, because if Russia had succeeded in marching into Kiev in days, Finland's current position would have been very uncomfortable and a bit more difficult, right? Absolutely. I mean, I think that's the alternative reality that we don't really want to think about right now. What would have been if mm. if mm-hmm. things had gone as, as Putin thought they would be, that, that right. they would be able to uh, take Kiev quickly and swiftly, and then we would have a Putin in, 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 a, in, in a full sentiment of, of power, which I think would have put Finland and the other countries in a position, especially countries that are militarily unaligned, that they would feel more threatened. Because, of course, then Russia would think that it can move borders and attack countries. And if it resorts into military means, it gets results. I think this would have been a dangerous uh, example for European security for decades to come. So I think one must remember that the Ukrainians' resistance, as I mentioned in the commentary, actually played time and also played time significantly to change the mindset in many Western countries about how they're going to address Russia especially from a strategic perspective. Mm-hmm. Back to you, Emmanuel. How did Swedish public opinion and leadership opinion change from late 2021 to early 2022? And then, of course, to now, especially, especially on the issue of seeking NATO membership? Much more slowly than in Finland. And uh, I, I think the difference, as, as Minna and Henry have both alluded to already between Sweden and Finland, is that while non-alignment has been more of a pragmatic solution to Finland's security dilemma in Sweden, it has been more of an ideological stance and, and part of Swedish identity, especially with, right. within the Social Democratic Party, which has ruled Sweden for, for most of the, of the last few decades. Mm-hmm. I remember in in the early days of the Russia's full-scale invasion on Ukraine, you had the the defense minister saying that it was disinformation uh, coming from the opposition leader mm-hmm. of the of the Liberal Conservative Party, the Moderates, when he said that he thought that the Social Democrats would eventually change their mind about NATO. And there was also a very unfortunate comment by the Swedish Prime Minister Magdalena Andersson, who uh, eventually did change her mind about NATO and, and made her party change their minds about NATO as well, saying that a Swedish NATO application might destabilize the security situation in Northern Europe, mm-hmm. uh, which she received criticism regarding from, from Finnish security experts as well. So for the Social Democrats, they, they've had this um, this self-image of themselves as being the standard bearers of, of non-alignment. And this goes back, I think, to like the legacy of leaders such as Olaf Palme, who was, you know, in, in rhetoric, very harsh uh, against the United States and the war in Vietnam in particular. But on the other hand, also had a close security relationship with the U.S. Uh, and one that was also built on a substantial uh, amount of spending on defense. I think Sweden spent 
three to four percent of our GDP on defense during uh, the Cold War. So in a way, the, this this was much the shift was harder in Sweden because it was tied to the the ideology and the identity of the ruling party in a, in a different way than I think it was in 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 Finland. So it wasn't really until maybe I would say late March, early April, that we started seeing some signs coming from the government that they were changing their mind. And I think the crucial factor in in, in their shift was uh, Finland's stance. Uh, and I think that it, if, if it hadn't been for, for Finland changing their mind, I don't think Sweden would have done uh, so either, because the, the strongest argument against NATO membership in Sweden was for a long time the fact that it would put Finland in a very vulnerable position and uh, during the Cold War that it would, in fact, you know, potentially uh, it would draw it would draw the iron, a new iron curtain that would border border Sweden, more or less, uh, mm-hmm. if the Soviet influence over Finland became even even greater. So uh, Finland has always been part of of Sweden's um, security uh, equation, if you will. And I think that this this has been reflected in this process as well. And it caught a lot of Swedes by by surprise that Finland was actually the ones leading the way toward NATO because only a few years ago, I think that this debate was probably uh, more intense in, mm-hmm. in Sweden uh, than it was in, in Finland. There was the, the previous leader of the, of the major opposition party, the, the moderates, who said in, after the annexation of Crimea that she thought that Sweden should join NATO. And, and at that point, it was the other way around. So, so this has caught a lot of Swedes by surprise. <laughs> it's interesting you mentioned that because... We have had voices in Sweden and Finland arguing for NATO membership for quite some time. And on this podcast, we had the former prime minister, Alexander Stubb, was on talking to us about this. Now, he he is not out there saying, I told you so. And I don't hear too many other voices out there casting blame for waiting. In fact, it seems like it has been a very civil process in in both countries. Mina, let me ask you about that. From a more personal view here, because you live and work in Germany, but you are now back in Finland. Have you been talking with people around you there about Russia's actions and about NATO? And how how do people feel about this, which is very important to us looking at geopolitics and geostrategy, but to, to the population there that you're talking to upon your return, what are they saying and feeling about this? Well, basically, um, people are very pragmatic about it, just as I emphasized uh, earlier. When this moment came, as Henry also already explained, I think a lot of Finns were just like, okay, this moment came now that we have always kind of been anticipating. In a way, the Finnish kind of pessimistic mentality overall mentality can be explained by the geopolitical location because there's always um, this kind of sense of preparing for the worst case and I wouldn't call that pessimism Mina I would say that is stark realism <laughs> <laughs> yeah let's let's put it that way well uh, yeah that's maybe a better better um, phrase anyway so basically this idea that you're always kind of preparing for the worst case, and you're like happy when when nothing happens and everything goes well. But when and like if and when the worst case actually happens, then you're also not surprised by it, 
really. Of course, like a lot of Finns were very shocked about Russia actually going so far. And the further the, the war has uh, proceeded about the, the, the terrible brutality of uh, Russian warfare in Ukraine, that has been definitely like a great shock to many Mm -hmm. although it's like in a way it has been a shock but not really a surprise i would say so a lot of people um just have this kind of like calm determination of course like like especially in the beginning i think like people were also worried because it created this like huge insecurity but because of the finnish preparedness and because we have never like left russia out of sight there's not much that russia can really do right now uh, mm-hmm. to intimidate Finland mm-hmm. so people are more like kind of like also maybe in a way relieved that um, that now we can actually call the things by their names and we can actually say yes uh, Russia is of course the number one threat to Finland has always been will always be mm-hmm. and like when I talk with my friends who have nothing to do with uh, with politics or like uh, security policy they are also just like they are like yeah good that we're like getting things done and we're prepared like um, bring it on kind of and and I have had some conversation like really casual small talk conversations with my friends about like what would we do like in the case kind of and everyone knows what the case is people are also preparing uh, a bit more than normally like having supplies at home like which is anyways recommended by the finnish government that everyone should have like for 72 hours uh like uh, supplies but there's like maybe a little bit more of that kind of uh like preparedness also among the, the the normal people so that's what i i see but like life just goes on like pretty normally and um and I don't feel any kind of like like big worries or anything really because there's this this strong confidence in in Finnish preparedness as well. Like Absolutely. we know what we're doing. Absolutely. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, What the f- are you talking about you insane hollywood ass so to recap we're cutting the price of mint unlimited from 30 dollars a month to just 15 dollars a month give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch 45 dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees promote for new customers for limited time unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows full terms at mintmobile.com burrow's furniture is built for the way you live from ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for the award-winning seating they always have their customers in mind their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime, identity theft, stalking, or even violence? I used to think this was silly, and then weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, And angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all 
for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And Delete Me is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web. And in the process, it helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once because the information will get back into the systems. It does it and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports and they send regular reports uh, at Delete Me, you know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of. But then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. When you sign up, they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use the promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 code Lawfare 20. Henry, could you walk us through the actual process of Finland's application to NATO, uh, starting with, I think it was the president and the prime minister back on May 12th, announcing the intention to apply, but then it made its way through parliament. And I'm wondering if you can describe the steps that took and how it got from a discussion and a notice of the change in public opinion, how that got translated through government action to the formal application? Well, as someone with a contemporary history background, I would say that it's uh, it's up to the scholars and researchers to make the full image of, of the details of what exactly happened during these decisive months. But I, I can say this then, as we saw the attack in Ukraine, I think some of the political leadership were prepared for this to become reality and also for what it could possibly mean for Finland. And of course, potentially this meant that NATO membership was an option on the table. 
even though it wasn't really that for, for the public debate yet. The biggest shift, of course, was already after two weeks into the war, we saw a popular opinion jumping up to 50%. But at the same time, I think we also must remember that there was a very cautious voice in the West regarding uh, NATO enlargement, especially after the first weeks into the war. I think the mood was more observing in the sense that we must take a look at what is going to be the development of this war, how long it will take, will there be a ceasefire or peace process? And as soon as we have a better view of that, then we can address the NATO enlargement issue. So Finland also resorted into some sort of strategic patience in the sense that it did not pressure its partners to to now accept it quickly into NATO, etc. And I think we also must remember that within a couple of weeks, things can develop quite quickly under circumstances like these. They can actually expire or develop uh, or spin out of control. Well, at least we saw the expiration of circumstances and thinking in the West, because as soon as people understood that this war is going to drag on for months and we're not going to see how long it will take, I think the mood in the West changed to causing strategic losses for Russia. And meaning, of course, the NATO enlargement would now be seen as a non-escalatory move, but instead mm-hmm. a a strategic loss for Russia. That, of course, changed Finland's position as well, from a careful to a more, not not, not vocally very, I would say, uh, rapidly evolving stance on joining NATO. So I think it was only in the early May when we publicly said that we are going to apply for NATO. But I think mm-hmm. at that point, it, it, it has been, if I look at, for example, my old tweets and uh, remarks from, from uh, early March, midway March, I think already by then the mood was, was that we're going to join NATO. But it's, of course, we must remember it was a two-track process. Number one, of course, being the domestic track that we have to give room for the public debate and also the Finnish parliamentary parties to mm-hmm. evolve their NATO stance. But at the same time, there was this international track of trying to have preliminary discussions with NATO members and member right. states about potentially joining NATO and how would they feel about this. Would this be an issue for them or perhaps uh, would they support it? And I think Finland did not want to move until it was certain that all these different tracks were covered in the best possible way. You know, it also, the domestic track involves preparedness, civil preparedness, military preparedness for different scenarios. Mm-hmm. And I think Finland did a very thorough pro- work in all, working out this international domestic process. And I think they also wanted to postpone the sort of actual public information about applying for NATO because they wanted to, of course, keep time for others, but also also vis-a-vis Russia, that as soon as it's formal, then it probably will start seeing reactions as we have now seen. I would still say that, to sum up, that if you think about this process, it's it, it was only three months in which Finland quickly was able to do a thorough preparation domestically and internationally to join NATO and also get security assistance and security assurances from, for example, the United Kingdom, uh, the US, the French, the Germans, and now we have seen the Nordic countries and Polish countries, uh, Poland as well. So I think this has been quite a substantial and a skillful diplomatic play, not not only because of, you know, as I mentioned, not, not only due to Finland's own skills and being able to seize the moment, but also because how we, things evolve, evolved. It led to an opening, uh, in a, an open window, which Finland, of course, then walked through when, when the time came. Right. And as, as part of that international process, of course, consultations with the Swedish government. 
Emmanuel, play the the flip side of of Henry's commentary here. What was the Swedish process of decision making here and going through the the choice not to put it to a referendum, the choice to make a government decision? How similar and different were these dynamics in Sweden on the road to the formal application to NATO? Well, I would say that the the Finnish process has been has been broader. It has involved uh, several uh, committees in in Parliament, for example, whereas the the Swedish uh, process that that eventually led to a, a report that was published a few weeks ago, it comprised a smaller group of MPs. Uh, so, whereas in Finland, the, from from what I understand, the the more more parts of Parliament, so to speak, were were involved, uh, and it was led mostly by by the government, and then the the process has also in Sweden to a large extent revolved around one party, which is the Social Democrats, uh, who have had their own internal, uh, they call it a, a security policy dialogue, where they've had to tell uh, members about, uh, you know, what what move they are considering. Uh, I think not a single minister before a decision was actually made came out with with their opinion, what they actually thought. And that was actually similar to to what happened in Finland, where the the president and uh, the prime minister also didn't really uh, reveal their own opinions until the very end of the process. But for the social democrats in, in particular, this this has been uh, painful because of the the legacy of leaders like Olaf Palme that I I referred to earlier. So the, the but the main difference is that that in in Sweden it, it has been a a narrower process in the sense that it has involved fewer MPs and and uh, revolved to to a large extent around one party. Uh, and then uh, another thing you could you could say about the the Swedish debate uh, regarding uh, whether we should have a referendum or not is that that was there were parties that that suggested that especially the the left party and uh, originally also the the Sweden Democrats our our nationalist party but it was never taken very seriously by by other parties for for much the same reasons as as it did in in Finland uh, and and that is also my my personal opinion, I think it is very hard to uh, to vote or to have a referendum on security policy because there are certain details and certain pieces of, of information that you would need to know in order to make an informed decision that is very hard to share with with the public and uh, and, and therefore it's it is in my view better also for from a democratic perspective to have that uh, process be be led by by politicians who who receive information that that shouldn't be be spread too too widely. So I'm sure that has influenced a lot of social democrats in particular who who probably received some some intelligence and and other information that hasn't been been shared publicly to have convinced them that that Sweden should should join NATO. And I do think that the that the the Finnish process has also been been very important uh, especially that that Finland has had you know they they've every step of the way the Finns have have been present here for example when the when the Finnish uh, security policy report was published in April uh, at the same time as it was being presented in parliament the Finnish prime minister Sanna Marin was was here in Stockholm mm-hmm. side by side with Magdalena Andersson and I really I think that was that was important for for both countries and and I should also say that 
we are, we are grateful that the Finns didn't repeat uh, what we did to them in the early 90s where when uh, Sweden didn't properly inform Finland that we would join the EU uh, which is uh, has yeah F- Finland could easily have done the same to us and we're we're grateful that they did not this time <laughs> everyone taking the high road yeah there is one difference of course uh, in government matters between Sweden and Finland which is that Sweden is a monarchy and i'm wondering i'm going to put you on the spot here emmanuel <laughs> Is there a a role, a formal role for Carl Gustaf, uh, for the monarchy in something like applying to an international treaty that will require a mutual defense guarantee to others? No, not not really. The the it is a constitutional monarchy and I think the Swedish the Swedish monarch has even less powers than than say the the British and and also doesn't have a pardon. I know that in Denmark, if you want to form a government, and that's the same in the UK, you have to have a have a meeting with with the monarch. But uh, in Sweden, that that is up to the speaker of the uh, of the parliament to okay. to do that. And uh, the king and and eventually there will, there will be a, a queen in, in in his place. They usually lead the. A particular gathering uh, consisting mostly of, of party leaders, where they discuss matters of, of foreign policy. But that is mostly just to to inform, uh, and he right. doesn't really have a part in the in the decision making process. Um, and in, in in Finland, it's very different, of course, because you have an elected president who also has a lot of, I think, and and Henry and Minna can correct me if I'm wrong, but the Finnish president has foreign policy is is one of the areas where uh, he or she has the most responsibility so mm-hmm. so it's very different from 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 Sweden where it is essentially the the prime minister and the and the government as a as a collective that can can enter these kinds of treaties such as the one with NATO that's very helpful thank you mina you have done a remarkable job recently at producing quite clear twitter threads debunking myths about finnish defense and security overall, with particular reference to the movement towards NATO membership, but extending beyond that. And I'm wondering if you can share with us perhaps your your number one or perhaps your top two, the things that bother you the most that you're seeing out there in the international commentary about Finland, misunderstandings about Finland's defense and security posture. Yes, thanks. Uh, if I may add just one point to what Henry uh, was talking about earlier, Please. I would just like to add that I think the Finnish like very like kind of multi-step process uh, towards the, the the final decision to apply to NATO was probably pretty confusing to a lot of like international observers because there was kind of like one like the past two weeks there was like one big announcement after another mm-hmm. and everyone was like oh my god okay now Finland announced the the, the intention to uh, to apply to NATO and then there was but now there was another uh, like announcement and now there's the parliamentary debate and now they're also deba- debating for like hours on end like and that was probably very confusing to to many because like basically it was already a done deal at that point but I would just like to add the explanation that that is kind of like a part of the Finnish concept of comprehensive security which encompasses like whole of society mm-hmm. like includes like um, business economy uh, infrastructure like civil uh, defense everything so I think it was like a very important part of the Finnish process to have like not to skip all uh, any of these uh, democratic and parliamentary steps although the parliament actually wasn't like constitutionally needed at this point yet 
the, the, the president and prime minister could have like um, triggered the, the application process on their own. Correct me if I'm wrong, Henry, but I, I think this is the case. But it was very important in Finland to secure the broadest possible consensus on this matter because it's like because national security is such a crucial part of Finnish politics. So anyways. Actually, I'll back you up on that comment because seeing the headlines of the major news media in the United States, at least, there were several days in which the headlines were Finland joining NATO. Uh, even (laughs) Even if it wasn't that dramatic, it was Finland applies to NATO, but it it was jumping the gun a bit. It was not accurately reflecting that every step in the process had had been done. So many people in the United States wondered why there was news on one day that Finland was applying to NATO. And then yes. several <laughs> days later, there was news that now Finland was applying to NATO. So I can back you up on that. Yeah, I can totally imagine. And and that's actually also a nice bridge to what you actually wanted to ask me, because um, mm-hmm. I think there are like quite a lot of widespread misconceptions about the Finnish motivation to join NATO. Basically, what I think is the most important thing to know is that Finland is not uh, applying in order to outsource its defense, uh, the, its national defense to NATO. Mm-hmm. So the idea is not that, like next thing you know, American soldiers will be posted at the at the thousand uh, four hundred kilometers border uh, <laughs> between Finnish and Russia, but that Finland like definitely has the uh, capabilities and the will to defend the border regardless of uh, NATO membership. It's more of uh, an insurance, you know, like kind of like an extra insurance. Uh, which is intended to make the stakes of like military action against Finland as high as possible. So in a way, if you see that your neighbor's house is burning because someone set it on fire, then it's like reasonable that you will want to make an insurance for your house. So that's basically like what describes the Finnish like motivation maybe the best. And Finland is not comparable, for example, with the Baltic states, which are tiny and don't really have their own defense capacities. And which, of course, are entirely like um, dependent on NATO for their defense. So that's like a really big difference between Finland and and like other um, neighboring NATO states uh, or next to Russia, which is important always to to like emphasize that that's the case uh, for Finland. And also, one thing that um, that is also like often misleadingly reported is the impact of Russian uh, retaliation attempts, I'd say, Mm -hmm. because, um, I mean, Russia has now um, shut off both uh, the electricity and natural gas supplies to Finland. And that was, of course, also like huge news internationally. And uh, there was kind of like this presumption that it will be a huge problem uh, for Finland, I was actually even asked in an, in a German uh, interview whether Finland may end up uh, withdrawing its application because of these retaliation tactics. And nothing could be really like further from the truth. Uh, Finland is so well prepared that like neither the 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 electricity uh, trick nor um, turning off the the gas tap like really impacted Finland that much. Finland uh, only imported like about 10% uh, of uh, electricity from Russia and that has already easily been 
substituted from the Baltic and from the Nordic electricity markets. Um, Finland will also probably be self-sufficient on electricity soon, like maybe Mm -hmm. even already next year. And also the fact, which really often is kind of misreported, um, there's this like very intriguing number that Finland used to import almost like maybe something more than 90% of natural gas from Russia. So of Mm -hmm. course, uh, that sounds like a lot and a terrible dependency, but (laughs) natural gas only accounted for approximately 5% of the whole energy consumption or the whole energy portfolio. And it was mainly, or it's, it's been mainly used in in industries and not really like very, very like little um, of the natural gas went into, for example, heating houses. So it's a huge difference to, for example, Germany or some other central European states in that regard. So it was also not like really a huge problem, especially now that it happened uh, while we're going towards summer. So neither of these actions by Russia resulted in much more than some headlines. And also we had had like a couple of months time to prepare for everything. Also because uh, of the the kind of volatile behavior of Gazprom already since last summer, um, there were already signs that something's up and, and a lot of companies in Finland already started like to look for alternatives for real. And there's always been this, like it's been always clear that the, that that an energy dependence on Russia would be like really dangerous to Finland, and and uh, that's why we never went there. And I think there's like a fundamental misconception about that. Like a lot of um, other European states, for example, who have a way higher dependence on on Russian energy, can't like imagine that someone actually had that much foresight. So I think that's always really important to emphasize. Those are. Very good correctives to some popular misconceptions, and I I appreciate that. Henry, let me close out on Finland before we close overall with Sweden. Let me close out on Finland here with a forward-looking question for you. There is remarkable, if not unity, at least a, a great deal of common perspective right now in Finnish government and public circles on NATO membership. What does that mean going forward? Does does that allow some space for political parties to to come together on some other issues that have previously been contentious? Or is this something that is very much reserved to the defense and international sphere? Well, I would say that one must always remember when it comes to Finnish foreign policy, and especially the, the practice of, of this particular political uh, domain is that Finns traditionally seek consensus on foreign security and defense policy issues. Mm-hmm. And I think this is due to, uh, of course, to Finland's tradition of being a small state where Finns have generally considered it a virtue of for not having uh, several separate foreign policy stances on crucial issues, that it's actually a sign of strength to have unanimity in, in, in foreign policy. And I think in, in, in it's also, especially in the NATO membership issue, it's about democratic legitimacy. Because one must also remember that if you look at the Finnish constitution, we actually did not require this very thorough parliamentary process in order to get Finland into NATO. If you look at the constitution, we could actually have just had the president and the government say that we're going to send the application and that's it. But I think in this case, this was about acknowledging the fact 
by all the parties, the government, the president, and also acknowledging the people, that this is going to be a big change and a big decision on, on foreign security and defense policy. And therefore, you want to have this as inclusive as possible. You want to have the parliament and thus the people committed into this decision. And it was also a way to avoid the risky referendum because, you know, NATO, NATO asks for a candidate country to indicate its full support, majority support for the membership. Now, it doesn't define how you indicate the support. It's up to mm-hmm. the uh, applying country to do that. Okay. And in Finland's case, I think there was a lot of talk about having a referendum before NATO membership became actually acute. And I think there were now polls later on in Finland after the attack saying that even over 50% of people did not want to have a referendum on the issue, that they trust the <laughs> foreign policy leadership on, the, on this. So I would say that this is a very finished project to do this thoroughly, inclusively, democratically, mm-hmm. almost a sort of a lawyer finesse work here that when Finland enters NATO, and if people, for example, would have had very serious repercussions and retaliation by Russia, that everybody would remain committed to the process, especially the parliament. And I think in this case, we also have to remember that at the end of the day, when it comes to ratifying NATO, NATO membership, then the parliament's role will be constitutionally important because the parliament mm-hmm. will eventually mm-hmm. ratify Finland's NATO membership after it's been ratified in all member states. So therefore, I think the the leadership in Finland also wanted to make sure that when we go around the ratification and application process at the end of the day, that the parliament will support this process all the way. And also that nobody can come afterwards say that Finland joined NATO through a secret backdoor without consulting the parliament or, or taking into account the people's view on this issue. So in this sense, I would say it's this was a typical uh, exercise by Finnish foreign security policy, which probably, unfortunately, will not lead into uh, a stronger harmony and consensus on other domestic policy issues in this case. Thank you. And I'll close with you, Emmanuel, to talk about the Swedish parallel to that. So I assume that Sweden, its parliament will also have to uh, ratify a session to NATO But there is one obstacle in the way. The elephant in the room, as the phrase goes, is actually the NATO country in the room, which is Turkey, which has Mm -hmm. raised objections to Swedish and Finnish membership in NATO due to its own political concerns. And I'm hoping you can shed some light on that from a Swedish perspective and how serious you think the Turkish obstacle is and how it will be overcome in conjunction with any ultimate parliamentary vote on actually joining NATO? Well, when it comes to an eventual parliamentary vote on, on NATO accession, I think the support will be substantial. There, there, is, there are only two parties in the Swedish parliament right now, uh, among eight in total, who mm-hmm. oppose Swedish NATO membership. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those are the, the left party, the former communists, and the Green Party. Right. And, and those represent about a little less than 15% of, of voters. So mm-hmm. so the, the support is great and, and that shows in, in, in polls as well. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to, to Turkey, I, I mean, it, it is an obstacle that has, has already de- delayed uh, Sweden's uh, nego- negotiations. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there's a Swedish and Finnish delegation in 
Ankara today to, and, and I know that, that President Ninista and uh, the Swedish Prime Minister Magdalena Andersson have both spoken to, to Erdogan uh, over the phone uh, in the past few days to, to try and assess what, what demands uh, Turkey has. Mm-hmm. I think there are some demands that are just out of the question. I, I think that there is no way that Sweden will, will extradite, especially Swedish, Swedish citizens uh, to Turkey. And that is not a mm-hmm. political decision to make. That's, that's up to the judiciary and the judiciary is, is independent. So, so that is not something that I think that we'll, we'll see uh, at all. But there may be other concessions being made from from the Swedes uh, and the Finns. Uh, maybe there will be, we will drop our our arms embargo uh, vis-a-vis Turkey, for example, and and maybe Sweden will change our stance when it comes to the uh, support for YPJ, the the Kurdish group that that I know that the Social Democrats in the current government has had some relationship with. Um, that remains to be to be seen, but. You know, it, it's it's hard to to know really what to what extent this issue with Turkey has to do with Sweden and Finland, and to what extent it has to do with with Erdogan's uh, domestic situation in Turkey, with the right. rampant inflation and 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 all the other issues that that he's dealing with. There, from my understanding, this was not something that was raised by Turkey in preliminary talks with uh, Sweden and Finland before they handed in their NATO application. So it may be that that Erdogan is is uh, using this opportunity to negotiate some concessions that will strengthen his popularity in Turkey. And we've seen this in the past, for example, when, when uh, Turkey used its veto uh, for uh, a few months to block new NATO defense plans for Poland and the Baltic states. Mm-hmm. Uh, and eventually they received some concessions. And I think that's what we'll see in this case as well. But I I don't think that this, it will, of course, <laughs> already has delayed the Swedish uh, and Finnish NATO accession process, but I, I don't think that it will completely block it. So uh, I'm hoping for, for a solution, but I, I've heard from both the Swedish and Finnish side that this may, may take you know, it may take some time, but I think we'll we'll find a solution eventually with Turkey. Well, let's leave it there for now, but I look forward to speaking with each of you about many of these issues going forward. Thank you all for joining me on the Lawfare Podcast. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get our other podcasts, Chatter, Rational Security, The Aftermath, allies, and Lawfare Noble on all major podcast platforms. And you can get ad-free versions of some of those podcasts by becoming a supporter of Lawfare, a material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. This podcast is edited by Jen Howell. Your audio engineer was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.